One of the most important questions of our day is, what is the true nature of Islam? Now the media tells us that the way we should learn about what Islam is, is that we should listen to the opinions of experts. There's a small problem with this. The answer you get is subjective. Which expert do you choose to get the opinion from? I would like to talk to you about another way of learning about Islam that is purely objective. It's completely fact-based and it is not opinion-based. Now since Islam is generally considered to be almost impossible to understand, how can we start and give ourselves a true objective view of such a subject? If we're going to do something and we want it to be sound, the place we start from must be absolutely sure. Because if we start on the basis of something and then discover that it's not quite right, everything we've done after that is suspicious. But it turns out that there is one statement that we can make about Islam that is accepted by 100% of all people, every Muslim, Everyone agrees on this simple statement. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Now when you say this in Arabic in front of witnesses, you have become a Muslim. So this statement called the Shahada is the beginning of Islam. But as I'm getting ready to show you, it is not merely the beginning of Islam. It is the foundation of Islam and the totality of Islam. Let's examine the statement very closely. There is no God but Allah. Now where are we going to learn about Allah? Well, from the Quran, of course. That most famous of all books. But how can we make the Quran, which is so difficult to understand, the basis of understanding? Because most people would say, I can't understand the Quran. Let me lead you through some analysis in which we can learn the major themes of the Quran to begin our understanding. First off, there is not one Quran, but there are two Qurans. Now, that big thick green book you find at the bookstore has only one binding on it, but in fact it contains two separate Qurans. Each chapter was written in either Medina or Mecca. And that is the key, first key, to understanding Islam. About 40% of the Quran is devoted to the Quran, the later one, written in Medina. Roughly 60% was written early on in Mecca. Now why is this important? It's important because these two Qurans are radically different from each other and lead to a lot of confusion. Now I've just told you that there are two different Qurans, an early Quran written in Mecca and a later Quran written in Medina. These two Qurans are very, very different. In order to show you that difference, let me read you two different verses. From the early Quran in Mecca, we have the verse which says, You have your religion and I have mine. Another verse frequently quoted is, Let there be no compulsion in religion. Well, this sounds wonderful. And may I add, I completely agree. And may I add, I completely agree with the Quran on this issue. And if only the Quran in Mecca had been written, I wouldn't be here now talking to you. But in Medina, the later Quran, 
we have an entirely different attitude. Let me read you one of those verses. I shall cast terror into the hearts of the unbeliever, strike off their heads, strike off the very tips of their fingers. All of a sudden, I'm not very comfortable here. I'm supposed to be terrorized, tortured, and murdered. Now, the logical question immediately arises. Well, which of these verses is the real Islam? Which verse is true? Because when you hear these, they're totally contradictory. One is tolerance and the other one is murder. How do we discern what is the real Quran? What is the real Islam? The contradictions in the Quran are so many that there are verses in the Quran which explain how you're supposed to sort this out. Because in Muhammad's own day, the Arabs around him said, Muhammad, you said something earlier. Now you've changed your mind. So here's what the Quran says. It lays out something called abrogation. And here's the way it works. The later verse is stronger than the earlier verse. So that means the jihad verse is stronger than the tolerant verse. Now notice they are both still true at the same time. Now this is our first insight into how Islamic logic works. Two things can contradict each other and yet they can still be true. Now as a Westerner this can make your brain explode. However, this is the essence, the first insight we have into understanding Islam and why it's so confusing to us. There's something rather odd about the Quran after you've read it and understood it, and that is this. There are five pillars of Islam, that is five things that every Muslim has to do. They're obligatory. And yet, we cannot find out how to do any of these five pillars on what is found in the Quran. So, what are we to do? Well, the Quran gives us the answer. In over 90 verses, it says, every Muslim is to live their life as Muhammad lived his life. They're to speak as Muhammad and act as Muhammad. He is the perfect human being, the divine human prototype. But how do we learn about Muhammad? Well, it turns out we know a great deal about Muhammad. As a matter of fact, we know more about Muhammad and the personal details of his life than we do about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. And the reason for that is this. We have a massive biography of 800 pages called the Sirah. And then as if that is not enough, we have a document called the Hadith or the Traditions. These are little stories about Muhammad. The shortest one is three words long. War is deceit. The longest is, well, page and a half, but most of them are a medium-sized paragraph and it's something that Muhammad did or said. These are called the Hadith. Now let's stop and look at something for a moment. You have been told three lies about Islam and those three lies are this. It is a religion based on the Quran and it is so difficult to understand and so subtle and intricate that you cannot understand it. Let's examine this. Here we have the three books, the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. And as you can see, the Quran is the smallest of the three books. As a matter of fact, it's instructive to measure the size by measuring the words in each of these. And what we discover is this.
14% of the textual doctrine of Islam is found in the Quran. 14%. Then we have the Sirah and the Hadith. The Sirah contains 26% of the textual doctrine and the Hadith contains 60%. Now let's stop and look at what we have found out here. What we see is that Islamic doctrine is 14% Allah and 86% Muhammad. Now and remember, you've been told that Islam is based on the Quran and yet I've just demonstrated to you that no, it is far more based on Muhammad than it is the Quran. Now this is good news because you see Muhammad was a man. Anyone can understand a man and his life and what he says and does. So the good news is you can really understand Islam and almost never have to understand much about Allah at all. So this is good news. We have found an easy access to the true nature of Islam. Now we have an important point. Everyone talks about Islam, but have you ever noticed that no one ever really can tell you exactly what is Islam? Now some people say, well Islam is the religion of Muslims. That's known as a circular definition because it doesn't get us anywhere. No, Islam is the political and religious doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. Or, said another way, Islam is Allah and Muhammad. Another way to say it is, Islam is the doctrine found in the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith, or as I put it, in the trilogy. We've now reached a very important point. We now know the bounds of Islam. Everything that is found in these three books is pure Islam. And if it can't be referenced to these three books, then it is simply not Islam. This is actually a major advance in understanding. Now, the next point we need to come to is when you read the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, something leaps off the page at you. And that is this. The doctrine of Islam is far more concerned with the unbeliever than they are the believer. What I've done is, is I've gone through the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and I have extracted all of the information that deals with the unbeliever. Now the proper name for the unbeliever is Kafir. K-A-F-I-R. That is the important concept here. How much of Islam is devoted to the Kafir, and then what is the nature of the Kafir and how they're to be treated. Let's first see how important the Kafir is. 64% of the Quran is devoted not how to be a Muslim, but who the Kafir is and how they're to be treated. And let me say right here, in every case, the Kafir is treated very badly. The Kafir can be tortured, raped, enslaved, deceived, and murdered. There's nothing good about being a Kafir in the Quran. But what's more amazing is how much of Muhammad's life is devoted to his description of his wars with the Kafirs. 81% of his biography is devoted to wars and damage to the Kafirs. Then we come to the traditions. 31% of the traditions are devoted to the Kafir. 
Now, remember when I told you about the three lies of Islam? It's a religion based on the Quran and it is difficult to understand? That's not true because it is not a religion. It is primarily a political doctrine. Now, listen carefully. A kafir is completely outside the religion of Islam, can take no part in it, is even excluded from it in every way. So therefore, the part of Islam that deals with the kafir is political in nature. It is not religious in nature. Hence, political Islam can be defined as the Islamic doctrine of the kafir. So it is not just about religion. The bulk of Islamic doctrine is about politics, not religion. Let me give you a simple example. In both Europe and the United States, Muslims will go into the streets and sidewalks in a city, commandeer the street and the sidewalk, and pray. Now most people would say, well, it's a religious act. What can we do about it? It's what they have to do to practice their religion. Look very closely at what's happening here. When you commandeer the streets, that is not a religious act. That is a political act. Now the prayer, that's religious. The commandeering the street is political. So we have to learn to separate Islam into its political actions and its religious actions. Another example which teaches us the difference between politics and religion was the destruction of the World Trade Towers. That was a political action with a religious motivation. So the reason Islam is so confusing, well one of the many reasons, is part of it is political and part of it is religious. We have to learn to sort out the two. Whatever Islam wants to do in a religion is, what do we care? But as those outside the religion of Islam, we have a massive caring to do about how it treats us. Now let's look inside of Islamic doctrine to discover the nature of jihad. That famous J word. You've been led to believe that, well, there's a verse or two in the Quran, but you know, it's a passing thing and it's not important. Well, let's go to the Quran and ask it how much of it is devoted to a jihad. Now in the early Quran written in Mecca, there's no jihad at all. This is because the Quran written in Mecca is primarily religious. The primary function of the Medinan Quran is very political. And indeed we find that jihad occupies 24% of the text. Nearly a quarter of the Quran written in Medina is about jihad, struggle against the kafir. That's not a small amount and it's not a verse or two. How much of Muhammad's biography, the Sirah, is devoted to jihad? Well, it turns out a lot of it. 67% of Muhammad's biography is devoted to war against the kafir. Two-thirds of it is devoted to jihad. Well, what about the traditions? Well, 21% of the traditions are also devoted to jihad. This is a large amount of material. As a matter of fact, overall, 31% of Islamic doctrine is devoted to jihad. Nearly a third. This is not a minor topic. When you read the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, 
one of the things that leaps off the pages at you is how much of them are devoted to Jews. Now this is very important because you see Muhammad said, you can believe what I say about what Allah says because the Archangel Gabriel is the one giving me the messages from Allah. And the Archangel Gabriel is the same angel who spoke to the prophets of the Jews. So Muhammad's first proof of his veracity was, I'm in the lineage of the Jews. Now as a consequence, the Quran written in Mecca is filled with stories that come from the Jews. Moses, David, Solomon. Now they're all changed, but at least the names are there. Now what happened when Muhammad went to Medina was this. There were no Jews in Mecca, so no one contradicted him. When he went to Medina, it was half Jewish. And they took a look at Muhammad and said, uh, you're not one of our prophets and we don't believe what you're saying. The nature of the Quran immediately changes. And what we see is, is only 1% of the Quran written in Mecca contains any negative remarks about the Jews. But in Medina, we find that 17% of it is devoted to what could only be called Jew hatred. Then we go to the traditions. And there we discover 8.9% of the traditions are about Jew hatred. There's simply no other way to put it. Now, interestingly enough, if we total up all the material and that is about Jews that's negative, and then we express it as the basis of all three books, we discover this. 9.3% of the trilogy is about Jew hatred. How important is the fact that 9.3% of the Quran, the Sir, and the Hadith are devoted to Jew hatred? Well, let's use a yardstick. And let's let that yardstick be Hitler's Mein Kampf. Now I have read Mein Kampf and I tabulated all of the paragraphs in it that were devoted to Jew hatred. 7%. Now what have I just said? I have said that Islamic sacred doctrine is devoted to 9.3% of it to Jew hatred. Whereas Mein Kampf is only 7%. This is not minor and it is very significant. Indeed, one cannot understand Israel without understanding the statistic that I just gave you. This next piece of information is based on the fact that I'm both a scientist and a businessman. When I read the story of Muhammad and his growth in power, one of the questions I asked was, let's make a chart of this. Let's measure how well he did. So in this next image, we see the Islamic growth curve and it has two totally distinct regions. The first is in Mecca, and we see that Muhammad preached the religion of Islam for 13 years in Mecca and persuaded 150 people to become Muslims. 150 in 13 years. Then when he went to Medina, he totally changed. Muhammad was a new man in Medina. Instead of just being a preacher, he now became a politician and a warrior. And did the results change massively? By averaging an event of violence on the average of every six weeks for the last nine years of his life, every Arab became a Muslim. Think about that. 
So the growth curve is very steep in Medina, about 10,000 a year joined, whereas in just preaching the religion, only about 10 a year. And now we come to the success of Islam. Listen carefully. If Muhammad had never become a politician and a warlord, when he died, there would have been about six or seven hundred Muslims alive, not all of Arabia. So the truth is this. The religion of Islam was a failure. The politics of Islam, which included jihad, were a massive total success. Let's do a brief summary of four facts that I have told you about and pull them all together because they're going to give us our greatest insight into the true nature of Islam and why it is so confusing. I just told you that there were two Muhammads. There was the Muhammad in Mecca, generally religious, and then there was the Muhammad, the later one, in Medina, a warrior and a politician. These are two different Muhammads. They're contradictory. Then we've already introduced the contradiction in the Quran in which we resolved it by abrogation. We had the early peaceful verses and then the later war verses. Now we have the subject of jihad in Mecca, no jihad, in the Quran, and in Medina filled with jihad. And then we have the subject of Jew hatred. There's almost no Jew hatred written in Mecca, and yet in Medina the Quran is filled with Jew hatred. These are all four major contradictions, and they offer us the true insight into Islam, because these things are all true at the same time. That is to say, Islam is profoundly dualistic. Islam always has at least two things to say about every topic, one you'll like and one you don't like. This is the true nature of Islam, dualism, and this is the reason it's so confusing. Everything about Islam comes in twos. It's political, it's religious. What this gives Islam is a stealth coating. It has the stealth coating of religion to hide the politics. It has the stealth coating of the peaceful verses to hide the jihad. It has the stealth coating of, oh, we fully accept all the Jewish prophets, and then preaching massive Jew hatred in Medina. Now, as a Westerner, you're going to come back and say, which one is the real Islam? The answer is always the same, all of the above. Once you understand that that is the nature of Islam, and that you cannot do anything about it, you cannot get rid of one side of the polarity. That is the nature of Islam, and it is its greatest strength because it keeps everybody off balance. Well, I've heard this good stuff. Well, I've heard this bad stuff, and we want to believe the good stuff, if you will. What I'm telling you is Islam contains a lot of good, it contains a lot of bad, and they're both true. Now let's take a look at Islamic ethics. Everyone has heard of the golden rule. There's an oddity about Islamic ethics. It doesn't have a golden rule. The golden rule says all people should be treated the same, but the doctrine of Islam lays out two ethical systems, one for the believer, the Muslim, and the other for the kafir, the unbeliever. Listen to some of the ethical statements from Islamic hadith. A Muslim never cheats another Muslim in business. A Muslim never touches another Muslim's wife.
A Muslim does not deceive another Muslim. Are you noticing something here? You and I, if we're Kafirs, are not included in this. How are Kafirs to be treated? Well, there's two ways they can be treated. As a friend, or at least friendly, and the other is very badly. So, Kafirs can be treated either well or not well, and they're both equally good in the eyes of Islam. This is disturbing to find out that Muhammad, for instance, repeatedly advised Muslims to deceive the Kafir. This means there is no golden rule, so Islamic ethics have a particular problem which I find very bad. One insight into Islamic ethics is an Arabic word called taqiyya, sacred deception. Just let that rest in your mind for a moment. Sacred deception. That is, a deception which advances the cause of Islam. So these are the troublesome things about Islamic ethics. And remember, I started off by saying I measure religion by the ethics it produces and the character it produces. So I find this very disturbing. So far as I know, I appear to be the first person who has ever asked a simple question. If jihad is so important in the doctrine of Islam, how many have died as a result of this? Well, my rough calculations are as this. 60 million Christians, 80 million Hindus, 10 million Buddhists, and 120 million Africans for a total of 270 million dead Kafirs over a period of 1400 years. Isn't it odd that it has taken 1400 years for someone to ask the question, how many have died in jihad? This is a measure of how little we want to know about Islam. We don't want to ask any questions of it because we're afraid of the answer we'll get. Well, I've been giving you a lot of statistics. That's because I'm a scientist and now I'm getting ready to give you some population statistics. I've plotted how Islam grows politically in a nation after it enters it. And you can see on the screen the growth of Islam in Turkey. To understand this, you need to know that in the year 1200, Turkey was a Christian nation, Greek, and it was called Anatolia. And now we see that today it is 99.7% Muslim and only 0.3% Christian. So what has happened over these centuries, and notice it takes centuries, it took about 600 years for Islam to totally annihilate Christianity inside of Turkey. I call this the law of Islamic saturation. And we find that this same growth curve is the same in all nations that Islam enters, whether it's Egypt, which used to be a Christian nation, North Africa, used to be a Christian, Iraq, Christian, Syria, Christian. And what happened to all of these? Is it just because they're Christian? No. The same law applies in Afghanistan, which used to be Buddhist, and now it's Muslim. We find that Pakistan, which used to be primarily Hindu with some Buddhist, is now almost all Muslim. This is the law of Islamic saturation. Ponder it for a while and see where we are in history now in America and Europe.
Next, we need to deal with some statistics that I've gathered about women. Surely everyone has heard about Islam's treatment of women. And now let's look carefully at what we find when we do that. I've gone through the Quran and taken out every verse that in any way relates to women. And here's how it breaks down. In 5.3% of the verses, we find that the woman is held in high esteem. In 23% of the verses, she is equal. And then in 71% of the verses, they're held in low esteem. Now, let's examine these a little bit further. The 5.3% of the verses in which the woman is elevated and held in high esteem, she's a mother. And only in that capacity is she held up for honor. But what about all those equalities? Well, there's a little catch-22 there, and that is this. One of the things that a Muslim woman will be judged on on Judgment Day is how well she obeyed her husband. So the equality includes submitting to her husband. Muhammad said, I have seen hell and it is primarily composed of women. Why, Muhammad? Because they were not grateful to their husbands. Such for the equality on Judgment Day. And you can see that I've done the same things with the Hadith, and they're the same. In almost every case, the woman is held to be subjugated. She is not truly equal. Now let's take the grand lie. We're told in the media what I call the grand lie, and that grand lie is this. There is only one interpretation of Islam, and that is the view of the Muslim, and we have to agree. Let me point out to you why this cannot be the case. There is a very famous episode in Muhammad's life where one day in Medina, he sat and he watched as 800 male Jews had their head removed. Now, the day before, all of the Jewish women were sold into slavery all the children kidnapped and adopted into Muslim homes to be raised as Muslims. Now, what is the nature of this action? According to Islam, the nature of this action is simple. It was a day of triumph, a day of greatness for Islam, because the perfidious Jews had denied that Muhammad was the prophet of Allah, and they suffered for that. That was justice. Then there is the Kafir point of view, which is this was an act of evil, and a war crime, and there's no good in it at all. The third view is this, the apologist. Well, that was then. This is now. Christians have done worse. Europeans have done worse. Let's not be judgmental. We've got to all get along. So every issue dealing with Islam has three views. The believer's view, the apologist view, and the kafir's view. So the grand lie is completely false. There is not just one view. There are three contradictory views which cannot be aligned. But we have to accept that they're all equally valid logically and, may I add, ethically. Let's go over what I've told you today. That is, there is such a thing as a fact-based, rational approach to Islam. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of what you think. There are hard facts to be dealt with here. They're written down on black and white. They're on paper. 
They've been around for 1400 years and we have to grow up and accept responsibility for reading them and understanding them ourselves. The opinions of experts are just that. They are opinions. There are two and only two experts on the subject of Islam. Those are the opinions of Allah and those are the opinions of Muhammad. Everything else is merely a comment. We have to face the fact that Islam is bounded and contained in three books. So let's stop pretending that it's whatever you want it to be and whatever the professional engineer at work who's a Muslim tells you it is. If it can be found in those three books, it's Islam. If it's not found in those three books, it's not Islam. It's really simple. So that is the answer. What we need to do is we need to turn to Allah and we need to turn to Muhammad. Those are the only foundations of Islam. We need to accept that responsibility. There is an answer to the question, what is the true nature of Islam? I maintain that this question is one of the most important questions facing us as a nation today. Why do I say that? Remember the law of Islamic saturation? No nation has ever not become completely Islamic centuries after Islam has entered. That is the problem in front of us. We must face the true nature of Islam and all the facts are at hand in order for us to do that. It is time for us to suit up and take responsibility. The responsibility of knowledge and knowing. Thank you.